0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: There's no question that as a country we need to look at the resilience of our infrastructure. And we need to do that with a a much greater sense of urgency, I think, than we have ever seen before. Um, This weather event has really highlighted that for me. Um, It is going to be expensive. It's going to require some really big... Calls. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins last Monday, one week after cyclone Gabrielle struck, telling reporters it's now going to be a hell of a job to fix up our infrastructure. And that's a word that's been in almost every news bulletin this past week. He just announced $300 million of emergency spending for it, $250 million of that for patching up the roads. But that's just a drop in the bucket in the overall scheme of things. The day before that, TVNZ's Q&A show described the issue this way.
0: Climate change is here. Our cities are not ready. Our transport networks, telecommunications,
2: our water infrastructure, all of it has been left wanting and people are
1: being killed. The costs of rebuilding everything damaged so far have been loosely estimated at $8 billion and maybe much more. Now at that same media conference, Chris Hipkins also went on to say that we have to do it no matter what it costs. We will simply have to find a way of doing it. There's just no question that we can't continue the way that we have been going. We are going to see more of these types of weather events, um, and so we have to be prepared. And it might not be here, it might be in other parts of the country. So we're going to have to look at, at very closely at how we make sure we've got as resilient an infrastructure as possible. And the media will have to look into that too, now that it looks set to become a major social, economic and political issue, and to get the political press pack going, an election issue as well. Now when Cyclone Gabriel struck, the media's main job was of course to document what was happening and pass on critical information. But even then, some outlets were already starting to ponder the bigger picture. A day later, when Gabriel's power had become obvious, Catherine Ryan said this in her weekly political panel discussion. These storms now are also reminding everybody that governments actually have big issues and big problems to deal with. And we are back talking about infrastructure, for God's sake. And we're back Mm. talking about managed retreat and all those things you don't want to talk about on a lovely, you know, summer's day well, we're all talking about infrastructure now. And it will be fascinating to see if political reporting that did seem locked into covering the upcoming election as a political popularity contest between two guys called Chris can now make a managed retreat from that to zero in on infrastructure, which we now know we need a plan for much more urgently than we need more analysis of political strategy. Now, coincidentally, the day that Cyclone Gabrielle struck the Environmental Defence Society published a report that was all about managed retreat from land as a consequence of climate change. Presciently, it said that a 1-in-100-year one flood could affect close to 675,000 people and 400,000 buildings, including 20 airports. But few of us are keen on really confronting climate change, according to journalist Bernard Hickey. In his Daily Bulletin on Wednesday last week, he said you'd think that our most expensive weather catastrophe in history might do the trick, or even two of them inside three weeks. But Bernard Hickey cited a poll taken after the storms in Auckland late last month, which found that less than half of those surveyed thought the government, or citizens themselves, should do more to combat climate change. And Bernard Hickey cited another recent survey that found that many of us reckon we are already doing more, though few of us really are. We're actually one of the least active countries in the world. Secondly, we also think that we're doing the most. That's clearly not the case. Last Sunday, on that episode of TVNZ's Q&A, the finance minister also said this.
0: Two words New Zealanders are going to get used to hearing over the next few years is managed retreat.
1: And Grant Robertson followed up those words on Q&A with these ones, including the other one that we're hearing a lot of too.
0: We have to understand where communities can be made more resilient, where we can do things to the infrastructure so they can stay where they are, and other communities and neighbourhoods where actually we have to accept it's no longer appropriate.
1: But writing for the spin-off, founder Duncan Greve said we hadn't heard enough from this finance minister, or indeed his predecessors in that job, about infrastructure spending, and he wasn't reassured by claims that we're in good shape to borrow enough to fix it.
0: Our debt is low because we've refused to spend money building the things we need. That infrastructure deficit is very real. The combined past and future gap is $210 billion, according to the Treasury. But it's not recognised on those balance sheets we brag about. Therefore, it magically disappears. And Duncan Grieve tried to personalise this
1: enormous problem in this way.
0: It's like driving around in a car with bald tyres, two indicators out and a boot that doesn't shut anymore after a prang. Yes, the owner has more cash in the bank, but only at the cost of risking their life and the lives of others as a result. Multiply this by about 5 million and you understand roughly where we are as a country. It still works, but it's a mess. And as if to point to the
1: same problem on sea, two more Cook Strait ferries conked out this week, leaving just two sailing and plenty of passengers stranded. Now ferries, like our roads, definitely infrastructure. But last week on MediaWatch, RNZ's head of news, Richard Sutherland, told me this. It's really important to have reporters in the regions, to have strong infrastructure in the regions, and, and I would argue that Radio New Zealand, or RNZ, is a, is a key piece of infrastructure. Well, RNZ is a lifeline utility under the Civil Defence and Emergency Management legislation, but is it actually infrastructure? Well, the old analogue-era radio transmission towers turned out to be when all else failed in parts of the north this past week. And as Fenner Owen reported on TVNZ's Q&A last week, the digital mobile technology really failed.
0: They rely on electricity to work. So if the power's cut, they have an inbuilt uh, contingency battery life of four to eight hours, and then after that,
1: you're on your own. And last week, Zedbury's Canterbury host John Macdonald told his listeners we're living with the legacy of late 1990s electricity market reform failures. And he now regretted recently getting rid of his landline to save money, even though it had been a lifeline back in the 2011 quake. More and more people on cell phones not using landlines anymore. Roads that fall apart even when it's not raining and when there are no cyclones. And a complicated electricity system which is largely reliant on technologies from the 50s and 60s then no wonder we can't cope when the worst storm to hit New Zealand this century happens, which all tells me that our infrastructure is so not up to the job of keeping us connected and moving in the good times and the not-so-good times. So what will it take to get back to the good times for our infrastructure? In his weekly Herald column, former ACT Party founder and leader Richard Preble also looked offshore for infrastructure
0: inspiration. Ukrainians are rebuilding in the middle of winter, in the middle of a war, at an astonishing rate. It can be done. Well, it can, but
1: Ukraine has had 22 billion US dollars in aid from the US for this purpose. To patch up and catch up the infrastructure, real upgrades can't be made until the war ends. But without international aid secured by being invaded by Russia, what sort of sums would we need for what we need to do now after Cyclone Gabriel? And what indeed is already in the pipeline? Well, quite a bit actually, according to this, from the head of New Zealand's Infrastructure Commission, who told News Talk ZB's Kerry Woodham this this past week.
2: Um, you know, we, we tracked that at the commission, and, and currently we're looking at about $78 billion in that infrastructure pipeline over the five years ahead. So that, that's the record for New Zealand. Well,
1: $78 billion sounds like heaps for building infrastructure. But is it? Well, you'd have to be an expert to know, and few in our media are. And it seems that in the short time that infrastructure has become such a hot topic in our media, we don't really have a common understanding of what it is, let alone what it is we need to do, even though, as the media are now telling us, this is all crucial for our future. Michael Currine edits the magazine Infrastructure Asia-Pacific and the website infrastructurenews.co.nz.
2: Infrastructure is a very broad topic. It's essentially the building blocks or or the cogs in in a machine that makes something work. Uh, It's important that people don't just use the word without being quite clear what they're specifically talking about. Uh, You know, is it our energy infrastructure? Is it our our roading infrastructure, our our stormwater infrastructure? That probably needs to be quite clear, otherwise you're just throwing around a a word. Hey, Michael, I'm old enough to be able to
1: uh, remember as a kid the Think Big projects being debated, you know, Robert Muldoon was the Prime Minister and people were endlessly debating in the media, the Clyde Dam, the Montanui synthetic petrol plant, things like that. That was part of the the backdrop to news when I was really young. We, for example, had the Marsden Point refinery closed. And apart from a bit of angst about, you know, security of petrol supplies, and that was about it. Are these things dangerously under debated?
2: The media debate things that they think people will respond to, but they're probably not having the more important conversations, which is about what really needs investment in our infrastructure, which has been underinvested by previous governments for, well, probably decades, I would say. You talked about Muldoon's Think Big projects, but really those are just vanity projects or or things that, um, that are popular when really you need to invest in the sort of more basic things that will actually help the country function a lot better. And um, if one good thing has come out of this, it's that we're finally having this uh, conversation. We have underinvested in infrastructure, and that is quite evident now. We're seeing water infrastructure completely falling apart. Obviously, uh, stormwater infrastructure and flood infrastructure was not up to scratch in um, a lot of areas of the North Island as well. If we were having these conversations earlier, perhaps we could have done something about it sooner.
1: I've seen some estimates of uh, huge sums, that uh, many billions of dollars, a lot of that catch up, the result of that underinvestment in previous years. But for the media to be telling people this, I mean, is this really helpful for people that want to understand it? Because, I mean, does anyone really have any idea what this will cost and what the country can actually feasibly afford to do to to fix it up?
2: Treasury has has, uh, forecasted this, our country needs $210 billion invested in its infrastructure to get it up to scratch. And I'm not talking about, you know, cycle bridges across the Waitemata Harbour in Auckland or or even a high-speed rail between our cities. So this is just our basic bread and butter stuff, just making sure that towns have clean drinking water so they don't have to do boil water notices or... Um, making sure our stormwater and flood infrastructure is upgraded so that we're we ready for stuff like we've seen this year, stuff that we need so our country can be up to standard. You wouldn't want to overwhelm people with numbers, but it's certainly something that they should have been doing already is paying attention to how much we needed invested in our infrastructure and weighing that up with how much successive governments have invested or under-invested.
1: So Phil Pennington of RNZ uh, has been out covering the cyclone uh, recovery effort, and uh, he's an expert in some of this area already because he's been reporting on transport problems and shortfalls in construction industry and so on. So he did a piece uh, highlighting just how big, just alone the transport infrastructure problems are going to be. If, if infrastructure is now going to be the big ticket issue, a big political issue and social issue, do the media need dedicated reporters an actual infrastructure correspondence and things like
2: that on the staff well, they can appoint a specialist infrastructure reporter if they, they feel that there's a gap there but the truth is all the information is out there the the reports are there the numbers are there and to be honest any decent journalist should be able to find them but without a doubt it needs better coverage than what we've had in the past because successive governments have underinvested in infrastructure and have gotten away with it just because we haven't been having those conversations
1: when it's dealt with nowadays, it just seems to be tucked away in, in the business pages or considered to be an economical business issue. Is part of the problem for mainstream media that even though it's more important than ever now, they still kind of find it a bit boring and it's, it's hard for media to uh, that, that, that live or die by their audience attention to serve up what they will really need.
2: Well, it is up to media to to engage their uh, audience and and to make sure that they can relate to these stories. And um, I think that that is why we're having this conversation now is is because finally um, something has happened that people can relate to. It's about tying those uh, issues to um, how it affects people's lives. You can't just say our wastewater infrastructure is is underinvested and um, people. Aren't going to respond to that, but if you say, "Well, this is why you have to check for E. coli before you go swimming at the beach," because perhaps people might start paying more attention.
1: Yes, a little bit like, say, coverage of uh, genetically engineering food. Uh, when you report it in the, the details and the science, it, it goes over people's heads. But uh, when media started running headlines
2: like, "You know, the Franken foods on your supermarket shelves," that's uh, that sort of gets people's attention. Exactly, exactly. You, you can't just bore people with information. You really do have to present the human element, and, and I think that's a, that's a basic lesson for um, all journalists, really.
1: If infrastructure and uh, the, the spending on it is going to go up, there will also be more lobbying, more people wanting to uh, you know promote spending in their particular sector and say it might be more important than others. Will there now be
2: a whole lot more stuff to balance out? Mm. Well, we actually we saw this quite a bit um, following COVID um, with the uh, government announcing its uh, shovel-ready projects. Um, we did some extensive coverage of that um, with millions and millions of dollars being poured into different projects a- across the country and different councils and organisations vying for a piece of that pie. Um, so we may end up seeing that, again, it really depends on how the, the government decides to approach this. So we've got our, uh, our yearbook coming up and which we actually look at overseas hurricanes or, or um, similar events to what we've faced and what they've actually done to um, improve their infrastructure so that they're ready for a, another disaster. So we've already started preparing um, our coverage and we're ready for that conversation to, to hopefully continue.
1: Is part of the challenge, Michael, both for a specialist publication like yours, but also for general mainstream media for a, a general audience, that uh, a lot of these projects that are important have a lot of politics attached to them. For example, Three Waters—that's a big infrastructure, a multi-multi billion-dollar uh, project, incredibly controversial—being
2: rescoped in part because of the reaction to it. Yes, politics can can help or it can hinder, but the the fact remains we have basic infrastructure costs that need to be funded doesn't matter which government you've got in those infrastructure costs need to be met i think we need to remove the politics at least from those discussions whether or not you have a cycle bridge over the Waitemata harbour that's possibly a bit more political but a bit less important than whether we have clean drinking water across the country which is um the, the the reason three waters is even um, being talked about in the first place, something needs to happen it's it's a shame that the that it's become such a political issue instead of a um, well, just an, an issue that needs to be addressed.
1: It was you know that. Outbreak in Havelock North, which was deadly, mm. which prompted the whole rethink of the policy that led to the Three Waters, and then all the controversy. And that's in a part of the region uh, that's um, you know now suffering so horribly from Cyclone
2: Gabriel. Well, that's right, and 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 Three Waters also covers stormwater as well, so that we don't see the likes of the flooding that we have witnessed uh, just over the past month.
1: Michael Careen, who edits the magazine Infrastructure Asia-Pacific and the news website infrastructurenews.co.nz.